This church has, as many others, a constitution and bylaws. Let me say from the get-go that Scripture does not require any church to have a constitution and bylaws, right? But we do believe that a document like this is important. It expresses in a written form our beliefs and practices. It tells us how we covenant with each other and how we should order ourselves as a church. So it is a clarifying document. Of course, that it can be poorly used, and sometimes as a fallible document can be poorly used in order to harm other people. But still, we think that its usefulness is worthwhile. It is worthwhile, for example, for prospective students, for prospective members that might be interested in the church. And this is a good summary of what we believe and how we order ourselves. But of course, it's not required from Scripture, nor it is infallible like the Word of God is. If at a certain moment the church believes that it should change it because something is not uh, in accordance to Scripture, or if we believe that some points in order should be changed, we should be ready to do so. But it is nonetheless useful. So it is important to turn to it in times like the ones that we are living now. And when I say the times that we are living now, has to do more with the fact that one of your pastors is leaving in the beginning of September and the other one is planning to retire from full-time pastorate in some years from now. So let us just bring to mind what we actually did last Sunday during the business meeting, three important things that our Constitution and bylaws affirm, which means that all the members affirm. Number one, the importance of biblically qualified pastors to lead the body. This is what our Constitution says in Article 8. Jesus Christ governs His church in accordance to the Word of God and exercises His governance through the elders who have been set apart to teach the Word of God and lead the flock. Number one. Number two, the biblical pattern for a local church is that of a plurality of elders. Not only they are biblically important as the way that God governs His church, they are also to be plural. Of course, that our Constitution says in Article 8b, in small congregations, only one man may have the gifts requisite to be recognized as an elder. But the Scripture indicates that normally there is a plurality of elders in a local church. Number three, that it is highly desirable for a local church to have at least one of the elected elders consecrated full-time for ministry and for the service of the church. This is what Article 8c affirms. Quote, in view of the fact that the responsibilities of this office are numerous and grave, it is highly desirable that at least one elder should devote full time to the word of the ministry and the oversight of the church. So, as you can imagine, it is important for us to think in a moment that the church is about to lose its plurality of elders and also in midterm two, three years that we'll lose his full-time pastor, although Pastor Thomas does intend to continue in this church 
as one of the elders. He is planning to retire from full-time. So as this approaches, this is a main concern of our pastors, and it comes actually in the sequence of the proposal that we set before you in the last business meeting last week. The sermons I have planned, also my last sermons among you, if the Lord allows me to accomplish them, will actually address main topics that are in my mind as concern for you. But I must say that probably this one is the one that I find myself thinking about the most and the one that I pray the most for you. And so I hope that last week's sermon in this sermon might be important to remind and press upon your minds not only the importance of an elder in God's plans for local churches, but also the weightiness of what it means to elect one. So I pray that as you recognize this importance, you might also have a humble and serious approach to the process of choosing the next full-time pastor. And I pray that by recognizing the weightiness of the office of a pastor, you might approach it in fear and trembling and seek for a new pastor in a responsible but also prayerful way. So I invite you to open your Bibles again in the book of Acts on chapter 20. Acts 20, and we are going to read from verses 17 to 38. Acts 20, 17 to 38. We believe as we heard uh, from Hal as he read Scripture that this is the Word of God, inspired, infallible, and inerrant, but also that for us to understand it, we need the help of the Holy Spirit so that we can properly understand it with our minds, but also be able to apply it to our lives. Because of that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking His help. Heavenly Father, your word has been give, given to us for our own sake, that we might profit from it, that we might learn and be corrected, that we might be instructed, that it, why, we might know you better, love you more, that we might grow in holiness. We ask, Father, as we are about to read and to meditate upon it, Give us eyes to see and hearts ready to receive it and to nourish it in a way that it becomes visible in the way that we think and in the way that we live. We ask these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Acts 20, 17 to 38. Now from Miletus, and it's talking about the Apostle Paul, the he here in the text. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I command you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So last week, the first thing that we have tried to see and to show was that the Apostle Paul had a history with the church in Ephesus. It was Paul who had established this church. He stayed in that city for a period of three years. As we see in the book of Acts, his ministry in Ephesus was very intense, both in his relationship with the members of the church, but also in the opposition that he suffered. So in sum, we can understand that this encounter between Paul and the elders of this church was very important. There were a lot of emotions involved. Their bonds were really, really strong. They deeply loved each other. Not only Paul had established this church, he had served them with all his heart, with all his strength for three years. He served them generously and sacrificially. This great esteem that they have for one another is really evident in this text as they come together and embrace each other and kiss each other and weep because they will miss each other. So last Sunday, as we've gone through this text, my, goal, my main goal was mainly to give a broad picture about this passage. So we have seen three simple points last week. We have seen, number one, Paul's ministry, what Paul says about himself and in the way that he served them and conducted himself. Number two, Paul's concerns, 
how he exhorts the elders about their role and their ministry with the church. But also number three, very important, Paul's assurance, how he says that he commends them to God and to the word of his grace because he knows that it is God and his word that are, that are able to build them up. So Paul can go assured that the one that has started a good work in them would bring it to completion. And so this week, my plan is more to unfold and to apply it. On the one hand, repeat the main truths, but also help you in the way that you should go and seek for a new full-time pastor. And I would like to start to point out a very important thing that Paul uh, clearly states or clearly has as a presupposition as he speaks to these elders, is that a pastor is to be an example to his flock. This is the responsibility of, that the Apostle Paul calls to himself, but he also expects the Ephesian elders to follow. In this passage, Paul repeatedly takes his own service in Ephesus, his ministry there, and says that the Ephesian elders should follow him. Note even that Paul uses his example as the grounds that they should take for their trust in him. Say, you know how I lived among you. You know how I behaved. You know how I served you. So listen to me. Follow my pattern. So that just as I took care of the flock as God's instrument among you, you should also in the same way take care of the flock that God has given and put under your care. And some may ask, but wasn't Paul an apostle? Why should we assume that elders are to be an example to the flock and members should imitate their pastor? Well, Paul was an apostle. Paul could say something like that. But what about elders today? So apart from this passage, there is abundant evidence in Scripture in the New Testament that it should be so. Let me just press upon you some passages so that this becomes completely clear in your mind. It's not just because Paul was an apostle. It was because he considered himself a pastor, speaking to pastors. As he said, for example, to his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We read also in Titus, Titus 2, 7 and 8, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teachings show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Or, for example, 1 Peter 5.3, as the Apostle Peter charges also the pastors, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he says two exhortations, and the last one, the third, on verse 3 is, not uh, domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Then we read also in Philippians 3.17, as Paul speaks to this church, brothers, join in imitating me. 
This is a bold statement that Paul makes. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes not only on him, but keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So you, they should not only uh, follow Paul's example, but all those who follow his example. Then we read uh, later on if Philippians 4.9 becomes a little bit more clear when it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And finally, so that it becomes completely clear for us what this imitation should be and the relationship of uh, the imitators. We read in 1 Corinthians 4.16 and then jumping to chapter 11, verse 1. We read first, I urge you then, be imitators of me. But then we go to chapter 11, verse 1, and we read, be imitators of me, Paul repeats. But then he adds this very important clause, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, pastors are not worthy of imitation because of something inherently good in them. Pastors are to be imitated because God expects churches to choose pastors who are worthy to be imitated. God expects churches to choose pastors who are already examples in imitating Christ. Only insofar as a pastor imitates Christ, is he worthy to be imitated. Do you understand this? This is very important because it presses upon you the responsibility and the weightiness of what it means to elect a pastor. This is an evident consequence of this. As you seek and pray for a new pastor, the church must know that when she elects a new pastor, because of what Scripture says of what a pastor is and what a pastor is to do in the relationship of the church towards the pastor in submitting to him and imitating him. So when a church elects a pastor, it is saying that it will submit to him and that they will follow his example. You see, the pastor that you will elect will not ask your permission to lead you. Why? Because it is for that very reason that he was elected. But also, it will be your duty not only to follow his lead, but also to follow his example of life and ministry. So in light of this, it is adequate the saying that says that a church will not rise above its pastors. The standard that you, sent, that you set for your next pastor will be the standard that you will have, the expectations that you are setting for this church, you see? So what are the things that we should look for in a pastor? Remember that the pastor is to be an example. These are things that you should look for, not things that you would expect the pastor to be. Do you understand what I'm saying this? A pastor is to be elected already on the basis of an example. It's not a trial, you see. The election of a pastor is not a football draft. In football, the team send their scouts to look for the one that they think might be a good player in the future. 
But biblically, the church is not looking for the one they believe that might work or come to be an example in the future. According to Scripture, the pastor is elected because he is already an example of life and ministry. Again, I urge you to recognize the weightiness of the pastoral ministry and act accordingly, seeking for a pastor in an intentional and prayerful way. You see, the proposal that we set before you was to help you in that process in terms of giving you breathing space that you might think about intentionally and prayerfully and with enough time. You see, we have proposed, we set before you the possibility of bringing hell to help Pastor Thomas so that all the ministry needs are met for a period of a little bit more than two years that would allow the church to think carefully about this important decision. We sought that in this way so that we, you might not end up with the temptation of choosing of what I called last week a why not pastor, which is when churches that did not do their job properly come to a point that they need a pastor and they start to wonder, why not this one? Why not this one? Why not that one? The office of a pastor is of a too much weight and importance to be dealt in that way. You want to choose a pastor according to God's own heart. And I need to mention that the basic expectations that I will set before you today are not exhaustive. I could not do that today. I am sure and I assume that you will take great care in studying the Word of God, in particular texts like 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, or Titus 1, 5-9, or 1 Peter 5, 1-4. Today I will only focus on this passage, the passage that we have at hand. And in particular, I will just be focusing on the duty of a pastor in three simple characteristics that need to come together in every pastor if he is to be qualified to shepherd in a way uh, that resembles that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the three simple characteristics. Number one, biblically grounded. Number two, mission-focused. Number three, single-minded. Let's start with number one, biblically grounded. See verses 20 and 21 again. As Paul speaks about himself and, his, and says, Just as I did not shrink about nothing that was profitable, which I did not proclaim to you and taught you in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, the repentance to God and faith in the Lord Jesus. If you see verse 24, you have the expression of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul was preaching and teaching. Verse 25, he speaks about proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 26, he speaks about the whole counsel of God. They are all pointing to the same thing. You see, last week we have seen that the pastor's ministry is centered on the message of the gospel. As Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you. This is pretty radical, but it is important. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
You see, the Lord Jesus is the raison d'être, both for the Christian lives and ministry, you see. It's the reason we exist. It's our purpose. Anything else, Paul teaches in his letters and also in this speech, that is of secondary level of importance when compared to the excellency of the Lord Jesus and his work for us. You see, Paul, as a good shepherd, does not see himself as the end goal of the church life when he says, imitate me. He does not think that the church exists because he is very good. He does not think that the church is sustained just because he has a lot of abilities. Instead, he said to the Corinthians also in the second letter, chapter 4, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. Pastors do not proclaim themselves. They are messengers. So Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Do you understand? The pastor is an instrument of God, is not the end goal of the church. Paul is well aware of who he was and who he is. He knows that he is a sinner. He knows that he deserves God's eternal condemnation. But he also knows that God in His love, grace, and mercy has sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for His sins. He knows that He doesn't deserve God's love or acceptance. He knows that He is a sinner saved by grace alone and not by something that He has done. So He knows that what matters most and what it is more profitable and edifying for the flock, it is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he knows the gospel and he lives in light of it. And it is only through Scripture we learn the Word of God that we are able to know God and His Son. It is through His revealed Word. That's, for example, what Paul says in verse 32. Quote, And now I entrust you to God in the Word of His grace. Why? Because of this, Paul adds, which is able to build you up and grant the inheritance among those who are sanctified. It is God, through His Word, that builds the church. You see, Paul knew very well that he was but a servant in God's instrument. He did not see himself as the church's savior, or sustainer. It is the Lord Jesus Christ through His Word that is the church's Savior, the church's Lord, and the church's sustainer. So, brothers and sisters, I exhort you to seek for a pastor who has already given proof of being biblically grounded, a man who is biblically knowledgeable, someone who is able to preach and teach being both as explaining the text, but also has acute pastoral sensitivity for the right application of the word, someone who is both knowledgeable and wise, a man who has already demonstrated that he is passionate for the word of God as the primary means for the edification of believers, also for reaching the lost, 
someone who believes that the Lord, what the Lord Jesus said when he prayed to the Father. John 17, 17, we read when Jesus prays to the Father and prays for his disciples and prays for the church of all times, and he says, sanctify them. This is the goal. The goal of any pastor is to seek the flock's sanctification. And then the question comes, how is that possible? How? And the Lord Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see, a man who continually preaches, as we read in this passage, repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus. He preaches, verse 24, the gospel of the grace of God. He preaches, verse 25, the kingdom. He preaches, verse 26, the whole counsel of God. That's what he does. So as you head to the church or meet with this man anywhere, you know that in one way or another, you will hear about Christ and Him crucified. You will hear about Christ as the only Savior and the only hope for the sinner. That's what a pastor does. In some, a pastor according to God's own heart is a pastor who commits to preach the Word, the whole Word, in nothing but the Word. That's what a pastor does. Biblically grounded, number one. Number two, mission-focused. You see, Paul served with a purpose. It was not because he didn't have anything else to do. He wanted to preach and teach in a way that was, see verse 20, the term there, profitable to them. Everything he did... He says that he did not shrink in anything that was profitable to them. So, what did Paul mean when he said that it was profitable to them? What is the profit from Paul's ministry among them? What is the way that pastors can be profitable to the flocks that they serve? In a letter that he wrote to his disciple Timothy, Paul affirmed these words in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. Very known. But it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. For what? For teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. These things also with a purpose, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is what's profitable. The Word of God was revealed and written with a purpose. It has a proper use, a proper function, and a proper purpose. The Word reveals us two main things, who God is and who we are. It is the Word of God that reveals that we were created in the image of God to glorify Him, to praise Him, to worship Him. It is also the Word of God and only by the Word of God that it reveals our problem in the solution. It reveals that we have rebelled against God and sinned. This is very interesting because the Hebrew word for sin, for transgression, means to miss the mark. You see, all human beings without exception have missed the mark. 
the mark for which they were created. That's what I mean. So God created us to glorify Him, and we have decided to live for other things. So as a consequence, we deserve God's disapproval and God's condemnation. But it is also by the Word of God that we know that God, Ephesians 2, but God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we know also through God's revealed Word that but God intervened. And because of His love, of His mercy, and of His grace, He has sent His only Son, who was God with Him, but who has emptied Himself and humiliated Himself, becoming like you and me in being able and being willing to submit to the Father and to obey the Father in all things to the point, too, in obedience to the Father, to die on that cross for the sins of sinners like you and me. It is also through the Word of God that we know how can we be in a right relationship with God. And it is by repentance and faith. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that all those who believe might not die, might not perish eternally, but have eternal life. And all these things we know because of the Word of God. But you see, the Word of God is very practical. It's not just information. It has to do with life and death. It has to do with everything we do. It has to do with the way that we see the world. It has to do with our expectations, with our desires, with what we want in this life. You see, salvation is a very practical thing. Christians were saved from the wrath of God, the just condemnation of God. They have repented of their sins, and they seek to live for God. You see, we believe that faith and piety go hand to hand. That biblical teaching is not mere transfer of information. That the Christian faith is way more than just knowing things about God. Again, the same prayer of Jesus in John 17 on verse 3 is very clear. And this is eternal life. That they know you, he is talking to the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, he was speaking about himself, whom you have sent. You see, the Christian faith is to come to a saving knowledge and a saving relationship to God and His Son through the Holy Spirit. As Martin Luther said, faith is a living, restless thing. Let's go again to verse 20 and 21. When Paul says, just as I did not shrink about nothing that was profitable, which I did not proclaim to you and taught you in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks the repentance of God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice these three pairs, important pairs, that the pastor proclaims and teaches 
that the pastor does so in public and in private, that the pastor does so to Jews and Greeks. You see, as we have seen on point number one, biblically grounded, the pastor is to be so. But point number two shows us that the manner in which the pastor commits to preach the Word, the whole Word, in nothing but the Word, but he does so in different ways, in different settings, and to different people. It's not a, just a monolithic type of thing. He needs to be ready to do these things, to preach the Word in different ways, in different settings, and to different people. Sometimes I fear that in our Reformed circles, with our right emphasis in the means of grace, particularly in the importance of preaching, we might forget that although preaching is a primary means of grace, it is not the only one. Nor preaching is the only way the Word of God is to be used by the pastor. It was clear in the Apostle Paul, was it not? A pastor is a man who believes that the Word of God is the primary means of grace, so he proclaims and teaches the Word in public and in private to Jews and to Greeks. You see, a pastor is a man who is mission-minded. He is not a hermit. He is a man of people. The man that you want to elect should not be a theology troglodyte, but a pastor. You see, sometimes there is a confusion between a person who shows interest to study the Word of God and a pastor. Sometimes we confuse a man who is always ready for a theological argument for a pastor. And this is what I'm calling a theology troglodyte. He lives in his ivory tower, and he's a reactionary many times. He knows all the theological discussions in the blogosphere, but is completely unable to shepherd the flock. He knows all the minutiae of the theological debates of his time, but he is no use in helping the saints in their process of sanctification because for him all is reduced to theological argument, you see. So, brothers and sisters, a pastor according to God's own heart who follows the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who follows the example of the Apostle Paul, is someone who is able to preach in a profitable way someone who preaches and teaches the whole counsel of God at all times, both in public and in private, and to all people with no ethnical or national boundaries, preaching both to professing believers and to unbelievers. Number three, the first one, biblically grounded. Number two, mission-focused. Number three, single-minded. You see, as Paul lays down the characteristics of his ministry, note some clues, some clues that he gives about the way that he lives himself and from which I took this conclusion. See, for example, verse 19, what he says. He says that he served them both humbly, compassionately, and sacrificially. His own words are serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. You see, his mission involved all his life, involved his time, money, gifts, and affections. You see, a pastorate, a full-time pastorate, is not that eight-to-five type of job. If you're not in it fully, you're not in it at all. 
And Paul shows that. It was his life. It was everything that occupied his mind. As he says in verse 24, that his mission is more important than his own life. You see, a pastor is a man who resembles the high shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a pastor whose mission is more important than his own life. He values more God and his kingdom than what he values himself. That's why we affirmed last week that true Christian service is sacrificial. Why? Because it follows the pattern of our Lord, the Lord Jesus, who sacrificially died for us. We cannot atone personally for anyone's sins, but we do follow his example of service and humility. For example, uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. But also I want you to note his love for the flock and the reason for it. See verses 28 to 31. As he charges those elders, he loves the people of God out of love for God himself. You see, he clearly understands the gospel and he lives in light of the gospel. He resembles and reflects the Lord Jesus in his shepherding. You see, he says, take care of yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit, not them, the Holy Spirit placed you as overseers. So they are there placed by someone else, placed by God himself. It's not theirs. That's why it says to shepherd the church of God. It belongs to God. But then it says something very important for Paul, which is his motive, the motive of his life and the reason why he serves them the way that he does. Because he knows it personally. It adds that the church of God, which God, he obtained through his own blood. And then he goes down, giving them a charge and an exhortation to be careful for those who will not love the flock and will seek to destroy it. Do you see Paul's care for the flock? Do you see this type of care of the pastor for his sheep, like a father who deeply loves his sons? You see, the reason for this is not found in his personality. Sometimes we confuse a single-minded person with some sort of personality. But Paul's single-mindedness flowed out of his comprehension of the gospel that he preaches. It's not mainly and foremost something out of his personality. Let me just quote you three passages so that you see this in other ways that he has manifested this. For example, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9.16, we read, For I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting. But then he says, For why necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He understands its urgency. He understands its excellency. Woe to me, he says. And he does not say that as lamenting. He is joyful that God has given him that privilege to serve the church. The woe to me is saying, there would be no other thing in this world that would attract my attention 
in taking my time, my energies, my emotions, my affections, what I am. Woe to me if I do not do this, because this is worth the whole world. That's what Paul is saying. As we read in Romans 1, 14 to 16, I am under obligation, says Paul, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then verse 16 tells us the why. Why? Why is he eager to preach the gospel to them? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why was he eager? Because he knew the gospel. He had come to a saving knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And since he now sees Jesus as most excellent than anything else in this world, he calls all the other things that he valued as rubbish. And now he runs for that crown. He runs to know him better. He runs to be more like him. And he is eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because it is the same gospel that saved his wretched soul, that is, save, is able to save everyone who believes. So he needs to, not because he, he has to, but because he wants to. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. You want to know why? This is the why. For Paul, for all Christians, and for the pastor that you are going to elect. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you understand? Paul is so eager to the point that the gospel and the Lord Jesus controls his whole life and everything that he does because he understands the gospel. He understands why Christ died for him. Christ died for him so that he might live for him. It is the love of God in the love for the people of God that moves a pastor. A pastor is a single-minded, not because he could not enjoy other things in this world. It is because he is not tempted by the things of this world. He is single-minded because the love of God controls him. You see, a pastor is to be single-minded, not because it shows alienation from the world, but a clear understanding of what is truly important and necessary in this world. People are dead in their sins, and the gospel is the only hope for the salvation of people. The excellency of Christ is more appealing then than anything else. So a pastor is to be both biblically grounded, mission-focused, and single-minded. A question follows then, how is the church able to assess these qualities? The answer is by experience 
and by example. As I already mentioned, is what Paul speaks about himself. See verse 18, the second part. When Paul starts to speak, he says, You know how I lived with you the whole time since the first day that I set foot in Asia. Brothers and sisters, the election of your next time full-time pastor cannot be some sort of experiment. It is not the thing you do and undo later on if it doesn't work. Again, the election of your next full-time pastor is not a football draft thing. If the Word of God is true, and it is, then pastors lead the flock through their example. They preach the whole counsel of God, but they also set a pattern to be followed. If the Word of God is true, and it is, then it is correct the saying that no church will rise above their pastors because they are the ones who are called to oversee, to take care, to teach, to protect the flock, which requires not only knowledge but also spiritual discernment, and they are also called to set an example. The healthiness of a local church, biblically speaking, is intrinsically bounded to their pastors. So a final question stands. How do we know then, how do you know then, that you will make a right decision? And I will answer, you don't, because you are not infallible. But you do have the Word of God. As you understand and truly recognize the weightiness of the pastoral ministry, you will approach this task both in a serious but also in a humble and prayerful way. And in doing so, you trust God. It's not because that you say God will take care of it because clearly Scripture gave the church the responsibility to elect her elders. So it means that it is... Your, respo your responsibility according to the qualifications that the Bible gives to seek a pastor who meets those qualifications and can lead you, but at the same time, we trust that God is in control of that process. We seek to obey Him, and we trust that He does all things for the good of those who love Him. And so that's why Paul Although he is very concerned about the flock, although he is certain that wolves would come in their midst, that people with bad intentions will come to try to destroy the flock, he is still going on his mission. Why? Because he deeply believes on what he says on verse 32. And now I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and grant the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So, brothers and sisters, I commend you to God and to His Word. Pray. Prayer is the recognition and evidence that you are commending yourselves to God also. Brothers and sisters, this is my assurance as one of your pastors. The Holy Spirit was among you before I arrived, and the Holy Spirit will continue to be among you one side apart. And this should be your assurance too. Trust the Lord with your lives. Trust the Lord with the life of this church. Work out your salvation with fear 
and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. May the Lord be with you. Let us stay in prayer.